Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Leading in a Crisis podcast. On this podcast, we talk about all things crisis management with a focus on leadership. We deliver this through interviews, storytelling, and lessons learned from experienced crisis leaders. I'm Mark Mullen. I'd like to welcome my co-host, Tom Mueller, joining us from the great state of Texas. Hey, Hello, Mark. Tom. Hi. Hi from Texas. Great. Our guest today is Lynn Miller, formerly Regional Communications Manager and PIO for King County, Washington. She's a respected colleague who models diplomacy, tact, creativity, and humility in sharing best practices and contributing to information sharing planning efforts. All that to say she's great to work with. Welcome, Lynn. Could you take a couple of minutes and tell us about yourself? I'd be happy to. Thank you, Tom and Mark, for inviting me to join your podcast and for that glowing intro. Uh, you're making me blush. Um, as Mark had alluded to, uh, I've enjoyed uh, a long career in communications, 35 years within private, public, and nonprofit settings. And most recently, I served 12 years as regional communications manager for King County Emergency Management. I have to say it was one of the toughest jobs I've had, but also the most rewarding. And ironically, you know, I didn't study communications in college. In fact, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, however, written and verbal communications are skills that I've naturally applied both professionally and in my personal life. Uh, since I resigned from the county three years ago to pursue an early retirement, uh, I've accepted a few short-term contract jobs and have enthusiastically continued decades-old volunteer work uh, promoting safety and disaster preparedness in my community. And I often tell friends and, and uh, colleagues, uh, as they say, you can take the girl out of emergency management, but you can't take crisis communications out of the girl. So uh, I love this stuff, and uh, it's, it's pretty hard to leave it just because you leave a, a job. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Lynn. Having you on the podcast gives us an opportunity to look at incident command and stakeholder communications from a slightly different perspective, that of a response agency, communication professionals. Um, much of our background is focused on the, the responses that occur where there's somebody called a responsible party, where there's, there's one organization who is at the center of the response and, and all the response agencies show up and work alongside um, to, to accomplish the purpose of stopping it, cleaning it up and so on. But what I've come to realize from working with uh, municipalities and, and government agencies is that those major incidents like Deepwater Horizon or Macondo or, or like uh, uh, the refugio oil spill on the West Coast, um, they are major incidents, but in, in the numbers of those incidents, they're a tiny fraction of the sort of things that you're always responding to. Um, I, I was talking with an emergency manager on the East Coast and 
And we had worked together on a plan and it was six months after the plan had been implemented and he rattled off more than a half a dozen incidents that they'd used it in in that period of time. So what I'd, I'd like to focus on in today's podcast is basically three main topics and we'll drift around them and we might land on one for most of the time. But first of all, the public agency, private entity um, response methods and how we end up working together and, and how how we, an RP can fit gracefully inside incident command and how agencies can, can come alongside a specific organization in the middle of a response basically built around the idea of how do we work together? Because we come from two slightly different worlds with a common goal. Um, and then, and I've noticed this is a real difference between public and private responses. Who's going to be the spokesperson? Who's going to be the face of the response? And, and I've noticed that can be really different. So I'm hoping we can touch on that a little bit. And then finally, because while you deal every day in, in, your, in your role, as you dealt every day with, uh, crisis management of all sorts of levels inside King County. What do you do with those really big, long-duration responses? And something that's interesting there is all of us on this call have had experience with long-duration responses. They've just been really different than what the cause was. So I'd like to talk a little about, bit about that and get a sense from you about what it was like going through that and what your lessons learned would be. So with that, um, why don't we go ahead and just jump right in? Um, first of all, let's talk about how private industry comes into a response and works alongside public agencies. Um, and what have you seen in your career of where that worked well or where it caused some kerfuffles along the way? Well, without airing any dirty laundry, because we all have lessons learned and things that we could do better, um, my experience has been that this has worked rather well. And after each experience, during debriefs, um, changes were made to strengthen those relationships. Uh, in my opinion, foundational to success in collaborating, uh, collaborating during exercises and real life disaster response is relationships. Uh, we need to build trust through regular stakeholder engagement. And this needs to happen when we're determining policies, putting together plans, uh, and all of the operational procedures that support those. Um, this really goes a long way in effective crisis management. But I have found, um, especially the higher up the food chain you are, it often requires letting go of some of the control and checking egos at the door. Um, and some organizations and regions of the country do that better than others. Um, I also think it's important to recognize that both public and private responders each bring unique skills and resources to the table. And the best outcomes result when we can share and capitalize upon those differences rather than um, keep them to ourselves or think that we're the only agency that can effectively respond. We really need to recognize that we all have blind spots. We all have resource shortages. And it's only when we can come together and share those that we really can walk away from an incident or even an exercise with a much better outcome. Uh, one example that I could offer to uh, organizations, and this is just something 
it sounds kind of obvious, but um, I remember as a regional communicator working with us, one of our cities in King County, um, she was a new public information officer and she was working for the mayor's office and really had not experienced the structure of incident command system. And I really encouraged her and her public works department and other organizations, the police force, to utilize incident command during non-emergency events. So for example, every year they have a Veterans Day parade, perfect opportunity to bring in stakeholders, to engage uh, nearby cities, whether you're using them for extra police and crowd control, or um, using their fire engines uh, just to be on call in case something were to happen. Um, those are perfect opportunities to practice that stakeholder engagement. And it's that sweet spot between an exercise, which is very easy to say, oh, this is just an exercise. I don't need to take it too seriously. And a real life crisis. It's that sweet spot because it's live. It's happening. There's a lot of variables, but it's a very safe setting um, because you've done it many times. You've got a lot of um, things organized already and, and some muscle memory, but uh, it's also a very fun and happy event. So uh, that's just an example of what people can do to actually put these collaborative partnership efforts uh, to the test. Sure, that's great advice. A uh, quick question for you about mm -hmm. that. You mentioned incident command and unified command together. And I know that we experienced communicators, we tend to do that, but there is a slight difference. When you look at your um, career in at King County, um, how many times were you responding in incident command versus that full-fledged, full-throated unified command? And um, what what would be the percentage you could think of of the difference when when you did incident command or when you did unified command? Um, emergency management on a regional level, by its very nature, is supportive. Um, without giving too much um, power and credit to the organization, I do think we are the glue for the multiple cities, tribes private sector partners that we have within King County, which is the 13th largest county, at least it was when I was working there uh, in the nation in terms of uh, size, not population, obviously necessarily, but I think size and possibly even population. So I, we were primarily, um, I would say closer to unified because we were working with state, being the bridge between different resources, um, operating on a regional level. So it by its very nature, whether we were supporting a, a small city or a utility company, um, we were naturally bringing together the people that we knew were needed to carry out the response. Okay, so while the, the entities that made up King County may be an incident command, if you get involved, basically that's one of the triggers that roll it all to unified command then. That is, that is correct. And even with like with COVID, public health was the lead agency on the response, but they utilized a lot of different organizations to support that response. And so there would be meetings that involved um, a lot of different uh, stakeholders 
that each had a role in how how we were going to communicate, how we were going to gather resources uh, and dispense them among the among the region. So a perfect example of how we're called into it, but somebody else might be taking the lead role. Sure. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So how, how do communicators uh, network? How can we do that better? Uh, because I'm thinking here in Washington State, uh, up here in Whatcom County, for example, um, I attended an exercise a few years ago, and it was it was a terrorism exercise. And again, that type of scenario lets everybody come in the room and play together because it's an external threat. Uh, but one thing that I experienced there was that in addition to the county and the city people, and I believe there was a representative from the state of Washington, um, some of the local industries had provided communicators as well. And it was really interesting to see um, how the how the local government communicators and the industry communicators were put in a position of working together. Have you had experience where you've brought in industries, industry leaders or, or communicators to be parts of your responses? And if so, how do you use them when they come in the room? Yeah, we have. In fact, I'm I'm going to give you kind of a foundational perspective of how it actually happens, because you just don't call somebody up and say, hey, come join my JIC and expect them to do that if you don't have that established relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my experience, I have found communicators from different agencies and organizations in general are more open to networking than their bosses sometimes are, uh, especially if there's a happy hour involved. Very easy to get people to show up. Um, But I can share an example. Um, Over just a period of a few years, I and my counterparts in neighboring counties and the state of Washington, emergency management, formed what is now a 500 or more strong network of communication professionals from um, private, public, and nonprofit sectors. And, you know, it's kind of like we would know somebody, add them to our list, um, invite them to participate in a workshop. They then would spread the word to other people within their organization or their little network. And people would say, hey, can I be part of this? And so it was, it was pretty easy to grow the list over time because we made it value added. The things that we did is um, those of us that were uh the organizers of it, we regularly shared training and conference opportunities that individuals may not otherwise be privy to. Many of these were free to attend, Um, hosted workshops at our own shops or tagged along with statewide and and, uh, regional conferences. We would meet socially in small groups several times a year. And again, those were usually just after work gatherings. Um, And we developed a website, and this is something, Mark, you'll recall, uh, you helped us with that. We developed a website that contained resources to assist each other carry out our individual responsibilities within our given organizations. Um, And this Washington Emergency Public Information Network, or WEPIN for short, um, proved its worth during the Snohomish County landslide in the small town of Oso. I think that was 10 years ago, 10-year uh, mm-hmm. anniversary, um, because we had this trusted network of communication professionals that had trained together, socialized together, at least knew 
the name of those of us that had a wider regional reach, uh, we could draw from them. And we were able to send a steady stream of people to fill Joint Information Center positions for more than a month, or I think it was almost two months during the response. Um, but kind of circling back to your original question, I think it's not hard when you've already reached out to people to offer them something to then say there's a need. And so even some of the interns or AmeriCorps volunteers that work for different organizations within King County, if they showed a budding uh, promise as a communicator or wanted to learn more about the Joint Information Center, I would actually make a spot for them in the JIC during an exercise or a real life event so that they could actually work it with us. And that was some of the best learning that they could do because we just looked at their skill set, plugged them in, guided them. And even if they could only give us a day or two, it helped me out. And it also then started to develop um, the skills in more people that could be drawn, uh, called upon in a, in a true crisis that would be have a regional impact versus just a local impact. Sure, thanks for sharing that. And that leads me to an observation, which is, um, it sounds like it's an open door. If somebody if somebody has moved into town in an industry role as a public affairs person and and wanted to get to know the neighborhood, it sounds like they'd be more than welcome to join an exercise that's going on. Is that oh ab absolutely wide open? Absolutely. In fact, we had um this is going way back to early at, in my career at emergency management, but um we had started to build a relationship with the Canadian consulate in Seattle. And they came and toured the operations center in Renton where I was located. And I learned who the communication people would be, who would be my resource so that if something happened and they had a responsibility for Canadian citizens in the area uh, and tourists, what, what would we do to leverage their unique um, needs and resources? And over time, we just incorporated them into some of our exercises and real world experiences so that they could actually have a seat in the EOC. And we had a communications arm, and we also had someone who was more in the operational um, area. So by being willing to let people kind of come in, you don't have to have your act totally together, but including them it builds those relationships and the a knowledge about what each other does, how the EOC, the, I'm using acronyms, forgive me, Emergency Operations Center operates um, so that when they are more of in a virtual partnership collaboration, they can, they can remember what it looked like. They know how it's set up. They know how information flows. It just really builds a much stronger backbone for regional response moving forward. In light of this, I'd like to sort of jump now to um, what you mentioned, Lynn, about the Oso uh, landslide or the Oso mudslide, I've seen it called both. But I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about what, what happens when something really big occurs. And the Oso landslide did occur almost 10 years ago now. Um, and basically about a mile of earth in a, outside of a small town in 
Washington State, um, slid away. A, a hill collapsed. There were mud and debris everywhere, and it ended up with multiple fatalities. Once again, remember, this is Snohomish County, which is north of King County. Um, you're in King County, but it actually involved the whole state in the response. So, you know, I, as much as I wanted to be boots on the ground and be in the thick of it, because what a, what a, an experience and what an opportunity to serve a community and help them. I, my role was much more valuable at the time in working support remotely. I stayed in King County because there was my, my colleague that would normally pick up my duties as a regional support uh, was out of the country. And so what I was able to do is leverage that network of public information officers to help create that steady stream of personnel to fill the JIC responsibilities. And that was no easy lift because it was sudden. People had to drop what they were doing, make childcare arrangements if they were going to go, because we were asking people to stay there for five days. Because you, by the time you arrive, you get acclimated, you're kind of learning the rhythm. To leave in two days just creates an added burden for those that are trying to run the JIC because they have to retrain, restaff, reposition people. And so we were trying to, to get people to stay at least five days, if not seven, any more than that. And we found that people were burning out. This was a very, very emotionally exhausting position as well, because there were 43 deaths, I believe. And um, it, it was just very sad. This, this small community lost a lot of their community members. So my role was to work with the state so that when the resource requests would come in for personnel to fill the JIC in particular, I then leveraged my network, made personal call outs, and then I fed the names and contact information for the people that were able to go. And this was from across the state. Um, I would feed that to the state who then would fulfill that resource request and direct people when to show up and where. Um, we we continued that uh, that model for at least a month, and then by that time we were circling people back in, and the Snohomish County had some of the resources in house that they could do to carry on much of the long term uh, recovery. Um, but uh, that was it was really um, at times challenging because a lot of times you had people working together who had never worked together ever. And, um, but one testimony I want to share with you that was kind of interesting, just about, I think it was less than a week prior to the Oso disaster, I had held one of my networking after hours uh, parties, uh, you know, at a local restaurant. And there were two people who met each other for the first time. And then fast forward, less than a week later, when one of them was assigned to Oso for the JIC, he walked in, he immediately saw the JIC manager who he had just met. And instantly he said his stress dissipated because here he was in an unfamiliar area, but he had somebody that he had bonded with recently. And it just made that, that time of service so much easier because there was already some trust, some things they had in common. And he was, he was able to follow the orders very confidently. 
Uh, you asked also, Mark, about a dynamic that stuck out. One of the best things from a public information officer point of view that really worked well is there was this huge debris field and they were using trained dogs and first responders to go through the muck looking for people and um, parts of people. It was very, very sad. And if you can imagine this this horrible, horrible scene, we had a, a public information officer who worked in um, fire and law enforcement um, through his career. And he was the perfect person to lead media. Not only did he have the uniform, the badge, and a weapon strapped to him if he needed it, but he had that that authority uh, that was needed to keep everybody in check, to set the ground rules before media were escorted out. And he made it very clear that if anybody challenged those guidelines, they would be removed, no questions asked. He could do that. I, Someone like me, they wouldn't have listened to me. Um, so knowing who is in what role, how they present themselves, what they've been doing day in and day out. You want to you want to position people in in the right positions, not just fill a position. So it's more than just being able to fog a mirror. You need to be very deliberate in how you place people. You know, Lynn, just thinking about sort of some of the leadership aspects here, and what what are some of the lessons we can take away? Two two best practices. The first is before an incident happens. Um, we pre-created a list of messages, three or four, to a, to a different type of hazard that could be put out immediately, even when you don't have all the facts. And this would be something that could be posted social media. It could be something that somebody, uh, you know, media shows up at the exec's office door saying, we need answers. And he hasn't even necessarily heard uh, from incident command yet about what's going on. There are some in the can messages that that are harmless, that are focused on what, what our protocols are, what our processes are for this type of response. And this is how you're going to stay informed. And we created this little trifle that I kind of nicknamed the PIO in your pocket. And we made sure that every executive leader, whether they're a mayor or a council head in King County all got a copy of that. And I funded those through their public information and emergency managers. The second thing, so we created a blog, an emergency blog, and it is activated automatically when we have an incident with information to share. It can be updated, it can be edited, it can be translated. So not only does that serve as a centralized place for public information, for internal operations, but also for stakeholders and the general public. You all could go to the same place. This is especially helpful when we as a large agency have the resources to dedicate somebody to just our social media channels, where other cities or smaller organizations, they're a jick of one person. They are a communications department of one person, and there is no way they can handle social media, talking points, newsletters, um, you know, all of that. They're one person. They can't do it all. So this this was a, a resource that anyone could access and from their website simply link to it. 
so they didn't have to keep updating their individual websites. So thinking smarter and using some of these on-demand uh, tools is really, really helpful. Well, thanks for sharing that, Lynn. And appreciate your comments. And I think we've uh, we've shared enough here for everybody to absorb at once. Thank you for your time today. Really appreciate you being a part of that. And uh, we look forward to more conversations in the future. My pleasure. And thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Lynn. It's a pleasure meeting you. That wraps up another episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, please like and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you for another episode very soon. Mm-hmm.